The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell, and joining us is a guest we've had on before, but has who has a brand new book. Um, Dr. Eva Max Kendi has a new book called How to Raise an Anti-Racist. Um, and I'm so excited to talk to you today about this because I think you know one of the questions uh, during the racial reckoning, as we're calling it, summer of 2020, um, when everybody started going out and picking up uh, your other book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, um, the question was, well, shouldn't we start and teach the kids and the babies um, how to do this? And when and how should we do that? So first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. And and my question is, where do we start? How do we start? How young do we start? Well, I think First, whether we plan to be a parent or a teacher or someone who is directly taking care of children or not, we, we, we should start with ourselves. And, and let me sort of give the example of a parent. For younger children, uh, when I say younger, particularly children who are younger than seven, um, the environment that we raise our children in, and even our nonverbal language, is actually going to be more influential to the racial attitudes of our children than what we're even saying. And, and what I mean by the environment, I'm talking about uh, the neighborhood in school. I'm talking about the toy chest. I'm talking about the books. Are they seeing different characters? Uh, are they seeing different colors? I'm talking about our nonverbal language, we're walking down the street with our child and a black male is approaching. Do our child see us getting scared? I'm talking about, are we saying, don't play with those kids? Are we saying, oh, when something goes missing and you know, your, your kindergarten friend was just over is the first question, did that person take it? All these things are, we're talking to our kids and raising our kids uh, you know, on, on particular ideas and, and so, and when we think about the environment and our nonverbal language, that has to do with us. And because what we think about race comes out in the, in the choices we make for the environment and also in our nonverbal language. It's so, it's so fascinating to, to talk about it in these terms of even the things people aren't saying. Um, because one of the conversations, particularly since the summer of 2020, as we've seen anti-critical race theory laws pop up in states all across the country, um, school board fights over teaching American history. I mean, there has been sort of this conversation about protecting quote unquote children from some of this information. But I was always like, don't you want <laughs> to expose kids to this information? Isn't that going to be good uh, you know, and healthy for them to talk about these issues so that we don't perpetuate these problems? I mean, speak to um, the piece of it where 
a conversation about race, isn't that a part of a conversation about compassion and empathy and kindness and, you know, seeing people and respecting people's differences? Isn't that a part of a larger conversation parents and caregivers should already be having anyway? It is. And, and indeed, the, the science and scholarship reinforces that. And so there's a, there's a relationship between an empathetic child and an anti-racist child. If you're a child or an adult who can look at someone who doesn't look like you, who, who doesn't worship like you, who doesn't love like you, and you can see yourself and you can feel when they feel, chances are you're going to be anti-racist, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and if you can only feel for people who look like you, uh, if you can only be outraged when people like you are, are, are being harmed, then you're more likely to be to be racist. And so, and then also scholars find that critical thinking is the opposite of prejudicial thinking. Like it is literally the antithesis. And so to teach someone critical thought is to teach someone to constantly be investigating, discovering, and transforming their minds is to really raise a thinker. And, 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 and to be anti-racist is to be a thinker. To be racist is to be a believer. Mm. I mean, I, I think about that a lot. I talk a lot of, about critical thinking and, and the lack of critical thinking uh, <laughs> yeah. that I see in the world right now. Um, and also just the lack of curiosity. Um, you know, part of sort of being a racist and wanting to shield your children from certain aspects of history and even people who are different, it, it sort of does come from this idea of like, you know, ignorance is bliss and somehow you're going to exist without knowing these things and that makes you better when I think actually being curious about people who are different makes you more interesting. It makes you smarter. It makes you, um, you know, more compassionate. I mean, talk about the need for parents and caregivers to really open up this conversation early. I mean, you know, how to raise a racist, uh, anti-racist baby. You know, Ted Cruz held that up at uh, one of the recent hearings for confirmation of Supreme Court justice. I mean, obviously there's those critics on, you know, on the conservative side that don't want kids, little kids to have these conversations. But speak to why starting really small um, it, it creates children that, you know, have that empathy you're talking about. I think that I wish, Zarina, that when we spoke about this specific topic, we spoke about race and racism, we, 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 we stood on science, just like I wish we did for other topics. Um, mm -hmm. If we were to stand on science, scientists and scholars have found that by three years old, our kids have what one scholar called an adult-like conception of race. By three years old, our kids are attaching skin color to honesty, skin color to smartness, skin color to cleanliness. Our kids are deciding who to play with based on skin color. And so obviously, if they're already doing that at three years old, they didn't learn that overnight, right? And so it, 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 that sort of, that research should demonstrate to us <laughs> just how important it is for us to start early. Uh, and, and, and for us to start early with thinking about the environment that we're raising our children in, thinking about the books uh, and the toys that we're exposing them to, thinking mm -hmm. about all the different ways we're speaking about race when we're not saying anything. And you know, one thing you stated earlier in terms of the schools that I think is incredibly important 
is that this effort to both silence the conversation about racism and remove books by writers of color creates a situation in which you have white students and students of color who are not being taught about racism. Mm -hmm. So they live in racially uh, inequitable communities with all these disparities. So they're basically being told indirectly that the cause of those disparities isn't racism, that people have less because they are less, that certain people are more because they are more, particularly white people. And then literally white people are more in the curriculum. Mm -hmm. So it sort of reinforces mm -hmm. white superiority without ever saying a word. It, that's a really powerful point that I think we don't talk enough about. Um, you know, when when Jess and I were doing the morning show together, we talk often about how, you know, we don't question the fact that most of the authors on, the, you know, when you walk into Barnes and Noble and it's like the classics, you know, table and it's all white men <laughs> and nobody's like, hey, maybe we should have more representation here because, you know, exposure to writing, um, you know, across the diversity spectrum allows you to have, you know, that amount of diverse perspectives when you're looking and thinking about the world around you. It just seems like very limiting. And that's just like not question traditional. I mean, until very recently, people were not like openly being like, are, do you read women? <laughs> do you read yeah. books by people who are not white men? Um, and then it, it leads me to think about the fact that the backlash to books like yours um, and others that you know, made it to number one during those, the height of the protests in 2020, you know, the backlash to what you have written about has been so ferocious as if like what you're talking about is dangerous. Um, what is your reaction when you see people distorting the contents of your work, distorting the contents of, of your books um, and, and the teachings within them um, to sort of paint what you're saying as dangerous to kids somehow. So I think as a, particularly as a scholar, it is, it is painful to see because, you know, we, we, we produce scholarship and put it out in the ether to sort of initiate engagement based on the research and based <laughs> on what we're saying. And so like, that's a basic element of like you responding to another scholar, like you actually accurately describe their argument and then you challenge it, right? And so it is, can you imagine if Zelina, I got the, I had the ability to make up what you're saying and then yeah. attack it? Like, I mean, it's just, I mean, that's what I sort of see happening. And, and so then how do I respond to that? Like, how do I respond to somebody saying that I believe that white people are inherently uh, racist, when in my work, I actually argue that the term racist is a descriptive term that describes what a person is being, that no one is inherently racist or anti-racist. Like, how do I respond to that? To say, well, actually, I didn't say that. But how many times can I say, I didn't say that, I didn't say that, right? <laughs> so it's, it's been extremely, you know, frustrating. But I think the crux of it has been to really change the conversation. I mean, in 2020, mm -hmm. Americans, almost the vast majority of Americans recognize racism as the problem. There's been an incredible effort to, to cause Americans to be like, oh, racism isn't the problem. It's those people who are challenging racism who are mm -hmm. the problem. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that was a big shift, particularly among, you know, um, suburban, white suburban voters, you know, all those images of little white children with their BLM signs. I think that was a moment for me that I, I certainly didn't expect um, because we've seen protests since, you know, 2012, 2013, um, but it wasn't until this 2020 protest where the diversity of the protesters um, shifted and the conversation at the same time. Um, so the goal in, in sort of how to raise an anti-racist is to get to a place where the adults <laughs> Are, are less racist. Do you think that, because, <laughs> uh, you know, ultimately that's what I hope, right? You grow, that you grow up <laughs> and you're like a nice person. Um, so so in, in that effort, I mean, do you see the backlash and the push towards like literally banning critical race theory and calling everything critical race theory and then banning it? I mean, do you see that as, you know, a huge obstacle in terms of your goal of actually creating a, a new generation of anti-racist. I mean, I feel like the back, like, how can we help <laughs> push back against this backlash so that we get to a place um, of the goal of having anti-racist adults, which I think is a really good goal. So I, I think we have to, in a way, I mean, I think you, you mentioned earlier how in the summer of 2020, you had parents and teachers thinking about like how they can talk to their own children about racism. And partly the reason why that was happening is because their kids were demanding it. <laughs> like, I want to know about, I want to yeah. be told the truth, right? What's going on here? We have to return to that, to that moment. Uh, and, 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 you know, even how to raise an anti-racist, like I actually started writing it before this whole, um, you know, anti-history, anti-CRT, uh, crusade emerged largely, you know, by the by the fall of you know of of, of twenty twenty. You know, I started working on this book before that just because I saw that need, and even saw that need personally. You know, as a father, that I spent so much time thinking about how to engage with adults, and I I struggled personally to understand how my daughter was experiencing race and and how I can engage with her on it. And that's one of the reasons why I structured the book uh, according to developmental level of the child. So it starts in pregnancy, starting with a huge crisis of, 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 of just this astronomical number of, of Black women who are facing mm -hmm. pregnancy-related um, uh, either deaths or in the, in the case of, of, of my wife, um, had a premature child uh, who my daughter was born at 29 and a half weeks. And, and then all the way how, you know, once the baby is born, no matter their sort of background, uh, how they're experiencing race as, a, as an infant, as a toddler, as a uh, school kid, as a, as a preteen, as a teenager, uh, so that parents can understand sort of how to respond, like how to interject, how to counteract. And some of those moments in your childhood are really powerful. I mean, I will never forget the first time I heard the N-word and what my mom did in response to that um, and and sort of going home and being, you know, I'm six and I don't really know what the word means, but I know it's not good. I feel it kind of, you know, as it's being sort of said to me, I feel it kind of, it doesn't feel good. I feel it, I feel it kind of hit my skin and I'm like, yeah. mom, this thing happened. I don't know what it is. 
he called me this and she's like oh you know picks up her purse and you know she's getting everybody fired um but i think it's it, you know those kinds of moments that really stick in the mind even of, of children who are not white um and how parents can engage and talk to talk them through those kinds of moments as well one of the other uh, questions i had um is about the fact that <laughs> We're banning critical race theory, but we won't do anything about gun safety, right? So, so it's like we, we're we're saying that teaching kids about race and racism in American history history is dangerous. That AR-15 somehow they're fine. Like we just had those at Walmart, and you can go pick it up three hours before you go to the hospital and kill someone in Tulsa. Um, but you know we can't teach kids about American history. I mean, let's just for for. <laughs> you know, argument's sake, establish for the record, not not necessarily the specifics about anti-racism, but really American history and why that actually helps create a, gen a new generation of empathetic and compassionate people. Because, you know, I don't want to repeat the mistakes of history, so you might as well learn it. Exactly. And what's the other side of this is you, you have the people who are either supporting the banning or are engaging in the banning themselves who say their kids don't see color so so they say their kids don't see color on the one hand and then on the other hand they say if we teach about the history of slavery or jim crow then my child is going to feel bad because they're going to see white people as enslavers but you just said you know your child don't see color <laughs> so your child does see white people does your child see the rest of us? Right. And and then why do you your demonstration that the only thing that your child would see in terms of white people or white people enslaving shows you don't understand your own history. Mm -hmm. You don't understand that there were white people who battled against slavery. You don't understand that there were white people who battled against Jim Crow. And and, and if we're teaching about both, we're gonna teach about them too. And so then your child could then be inspired by the Grimke sisters or William Lloyd mm -hmm. Garrison, uh, you know, or others. And, and, and then they can sort of draw from the empathy that those abolitionists and civil rights activists showed to black people in their time to, for them to have the similar sort of empathy for black people in our time. Why is that horrible or bad for your child? To me, it sounds like it's good. Yeah, I, Jess McIntosh used to say this, like, you know, when I read the history books, like, I don't identify with the slaveholder, I identify with the abolitionist. And, the, you know, there's good white people in the stories uh, about American history over time. And white children could easily see themselves in and embody um, those folks in the story also and it's so weird that they default to you they're gonna feel bad because they're gonna see themselves as as a slave owner when when there's a lot more to the story which is why they have to learn it because clearly they don't, they don't know it um my and last so question now, oh, oh go ahead go ahead i was gonna say i wonder what i wonder if part of it well a lot of this is about propaganda but i wonder if mm. for some people it's not that they don't want it's 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 that they don't want their child to identify them with the enslaver. <laughs> I wonder because they understand learning about the politics of the enslaver, the politics of the Jim Crow segregationists, and then their own parents' politics. And they're so similar. They're, they're all advocating states' rights. 
they were all advocating this idea that white people were, were being, were the primary people being harmed. They were all advocating this idea that the source of uh, inequality was, was, was the inferiority of people of color. And so I wonder if that's the fear. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a really, really relevant point there because, <laughs> you know, I think that, you know, I don't think the kids are the ones that are afraid of this history and should be afraid. I think it's the parents that, um, you know, may feel, feel indicted a bit by, by the lack of action on some of these issues, because again, it's their generation that we're critiquing. You know, when, when we get to conversations about environmental racism and climate change, I'm looking at my parents' generation, the generation after them, like, y'all didn't do anything about this. They were putting out reports for the last exactly. 30 years and said, if you didn't do anything, the, you know, we would destroy the planet and <laughs> we would all drown. But I'm glad that, you know, we're here and we didn't do anything. Um, my, my last question is sort of, where do you see this conversation going? Um, because, you know, the demographic shifts in the country mean that this conversation is not going away whether they ban the books from school or not. Um, the conversation is going to happen. It just may not happen in a classroom in Oklahoma or Florida, but it's going to happen in the streets. It's going to happen in homes all over the country. You know, race is not going to disappear as an issue. So where do you think this sort of the anti-racism piece of this conversation goes as, you know, all of this collides and I don't know what's going to happen in 2024, but certainly if Donald Trump runs again, we're going to be talking about race and racism every single day again. So I, I can share wh where it's appearing to be going and where I hope it's going. I, I think it's where what it's appearing to be going is that you, you, you're having these radically different educational and environmental experiences for, for young people. So in some school districts, they are learning all about, you know, slavery and racism and, and, and anti-racism and, you know, really sort of digging deep into its, even its intersections with sexism and homophobia and they're sort of, you know, really intensely learning about it. And then in other school districts, there's like, at least on the books, there's like nothing. And there probably are some teachers who are like black, who are like black teachers during Jim Crow segregation. I'm going to tell these kids the truth, you know, <laughs> under, you know, basically, you know, undercover. Uh, but of course, they're, they're, those teachers are likely far and few between because of the fear that teachers have. Um, and, and so we, we're, we're having these vastly different educational environments, you know, for children. That's where it appears to be going. And where I hope it goes um, is that the very parents who have spent the last year and a half being, being manipulated into thinking that anti-racism anti-racist education is harmful for their children, will realize it's actually helpful. And what's actually harmful for their children are the type of educational system that their own elected officials are advocating for. And that they will come to realize there's a, a direct relationship between removing these guardrails of anti-racist education in a moment in which white supremacists are recruiting young white people online intensely and uh you know these mass shootings you know and the assault on democracy 
you know, and sort of the end of the American project. So I, I think hopefully parents and teachers will make those connections because that's the moment we're in now. Yeah, it feels like uh, a U.S. history class. I'd really like to sit in one just to see what they're talking about, given the fact that, um, you know, we're watching January 6 hearings where the former president tried to overturn the election and, and delay the peaceful transfer of power. Even though the vice president, they had hung a real gallows outside and threatened to hang him from the gallows. And there was a window, I believe, separating him, his wife and his daughter from the mob. So, you know, these are really unprecedented times. And I never I never even like to describe what I just said without saying that that's in really just nuts. <laughs> like what I just said is nuts. And I think the 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 way we got to that place was a failure to actually address the white supremacy that, you know, brought us Donald Trump because he, he really just embodies <laughs> the problem. He, he he didn't invent it. He didn't create it. But you know, I think he embodies a lot of what we should have been talking about and we didn't. Um, my very last question um, is, how do you think this is going to factor into the midterm elections? It's sort of a sort of um, question that you're not a political analyst per se, but do you think that more elected officials should lean into a conversation about anti-racism as part of a political message? Um, because they're not only speaking to white people. Um, especially if you're a Democrat. So I assume you want to be able to, um, with some dexterity, talk about race and racism because it, 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 it absolutely is related to the public policies that, you know, these officials are implementing. So actually I do. And, and I, I think, you know, obviously if they are speaking to, if politicians are crafting a political message towards communities of color, you know, it's it's not lost in communities of color that their writers, that their authors are being sort of banned, that the experiences of their people are being quote called CRT. Even if you're black, you're just called CRT. Right. Like like Judge Brown. Uh, and so it's um I, I think, but for white people, I think that you can then simultaneously craft a message that states that anti-racist education can protect your children from white supremacists. Mm. <laughs> like, I mean, that's, yeah. to me, yeah. the, 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 we're living in a time of white supremacist violence. We're mm -hmm. living in a time where white supremacists are the greatest domestic terrorist threat of our time. We're living in a time where white supremacists are actively recruiting online through memes and multiplayer video games, through direct messages, through videos and TikTok. And, 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 and many parents, particularly many white parents, are seeing these kids, their kids, mm -hmm. sort of get pulled down these sort of rabbit holes in which they then start speaking out against Jewish people or women or, or Black people or immigrants. And, and so this is happening to, to many sort of families and they're too ashamed to talk about it publicly. And how can any child identify a sexist or homophobic or anti-Semitic or racist idea if nobody's ever talked to them about it? Yeah. Right. And so how can they protect themselves from it? And so you have the very white, the very people, the very kids who are being targeted are the very kids who are the most vulnerable, you know, to this messaging by the people and the people who are removing, you know, conversations about gender and sexuality and, and, and race are the very people who claim they care about your kids. They don't care right. about your kids. <laughs> right. I'm sorry. That's what I would say. 
No, it, it, well, I think that it's right because it's, it's the white supremacist threat is real. And you're right, they're recruiting these kids younger and younger. When I when we all saw Charlottesville take place, we should have all, you know, that should have sent a signal straight up because many of the people marching and saying Jews will not replace us and other really white supremacist, white nationalist, Nazi propaganda, they were young. That was one of the things that stood out at the time. Um, you know, if we thought that racism was just gonna like die off because, you know, um, the races from back in the day aged out, um, we were wrong. We were wrong. We have to raise a new generation of anti-racists yeah. uh, to the point of your book. And one other quick thing that was fascinating that I, that I wrote about in How to Raise an Anti-Racist, and, and Heather McGee also wrote about this in her book, The Some of Us, is that white children actually perform better in diverse schools than they do in predominantly white schools. So those of us trying to create heterogeneous, diverse environments are being opposed by people who claim they care about white kids, even though white kids do better in those places. So, I mean, you know, this is the types of things that people can say, but as you know, I mean, for whatever reason, somehow there's this thinking that the best response is to not respond if you're an elected <laughs> official. I mean, yeah. Yeah. That does that ever work for anybody? Um, I find that no, I'm gonna have my I'm gonna have a counter uh to, to your straw man argument, um, which is what they're doing. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, the new book is How to Raise an Anti-Racist. Um, and I I think that every parent could benefit of all backgrounds. Um, because we have to have the conversation. I, I'm not for ignoring the conversation because then the problems just continue to exist. And I don't like looking at problems. Like when I see the matrix, I want to fix, you know, when I fix the problems and I, I hate, you know, not talking about them makes them just last longer. I'm not for that. Um, thank you so much for joining as always. It was great to talk to you. Please stay safe. Of course, thank you. Please stay safe too. Check in for new episodes every weekday.